Red Salute. Welcome back to the Manifesting Podcast. Now, before we jump into the rundown for the topics we're going to be discussing this week, I just have a few notes about the show. Pretty exciting stuff, at least in my opinion. We'll see what you think. But um, if you listened last week, you know I had a guest on. I had Lauren on to do her Laurent about the passing of Barbara Bush, and I thought she did a phenomenal job. I uh, kind of floated the idea to her that, you know, you're more than welcome to come back onto the show at any point to do another rant. She's totally into the idea, so she'll be doing another one this week about the police. And we discussed her being kind of a permanent part of the show moving forward, and she's into that idea as well. So if you dug the Laurent last week, if you like it this week, you can look forward to that being a part of the show going forward. You know, as I talked about last week, I think it's important for a leftist show to have different voices on for a myriad of different reasons. So it's pretty cool to have a woman's voice on the show going forward. And um, again, she's so well-researched, did a really excellent job. So I am looking forward to that, to say the least. Speaking of changes to the show, now, um, even when I started this thing back in 2016, early 2016, which please do not go back and listen to those first few episodes because they were absolutely horrific. Not that I've improved that much, but those ones were especially bad. Uh, I've always wanted to do interviews. It's just something I haven't gotten around to, to be quite honest with you, but especially since I made my return in March of this year, it's something that's really been on my radar. So still working out the details, but um, sometime probably mid-May, we're going to have our first guest on the show. And I figured for the first guest, it should be a good one. So we're actually going to have Jay Mufawad Paul on the show for an interview, which I'm really excited about. If you've listened to this podcast at all, you know I've relied heavily on his work. He has authored the books The Communist Necessity, Continuity and Rupture, and Austerity Apparatus. He has a wonderful blog called MLM Mayhem, which you should definitely check out as well. And so we'll be discussing all that and also talking about his upcoming book. He's co-authoring a book called Methods Devour Themselves, and it's a really interesting concept. So again, working out the details, but um, yeah, JMP will be on the show probably mid-May, so that's really exciting news as well. All that being said, let's go ahead and jump into the rundown of what we'll be discussing this week. In the headline segment, I'll be talking about a pretty sad story out of India where we had 37 Maoists killed um, during a police raid. Pretty, pretty shitty news, to be quite honest with you, so we'll touch on that a little bit. We will also talk about the announcement from the DPRK in South Korea, the, the peace treaty the two have agreed to, and, you know, it's speculation is generally useless. I, I fully realize that, but we're going to talk about what this potentially means or might mean for the DPRK in South Korea moving forward. So there's a lot to be said there, so we'll touch on that topic as well. And like I said earlier, you know, Lauren's going to be on with another Laurent about the police, so I'm looking forward to listening to that as well. I think that's, um, just getting away from the rundown for a second, I think that's another really important reason to, to have somebody else on the show, because she's so well-researched in kind of domestic issues, she's going to be talking about feminism, you know, a whole host of things. She's not limited to that by any means, but it just frees up myself to... Uh, to be able to do more international stories, which is why I'm talking about the killings in India and this whole thing with the DPRK and, and uh, South Korea. So another really important part of having somebody else on the show. So yeah, she's going to be doing another rant about the police, so looking forward to that as well. In the back half of the show, we're going to be continuing our discussion about the Russian Revolution, of course. We'll do a brief recap of what we discussed last week and then move that story forward. We're going to be focusing in again on Lenin. I mean, Lenin's a huge part of this, obviously. And we'll be talking about Russia during the early 1900s, which was such a tumultuous time. Like, things were really, really starting to ramp up during that time period. So should be an interesting segment this week. 
as always, if you have questions, concerns, comments, death threats, you can find me on Twitter at ManifestPod. I do have the Facebook page up. Just look for Manifesting Podcast. I am occasionally on Instagram. And if you want to support the show, you can do so at Patreon.com slash ManifestPod. And again, like I've said the last couple of weeks, if you want to listen on a different platform, I am on Apple Podcasts now. I am on Google Play, SoundCloud, etc., etc. So wherever you listen to your podcast, you should be able to track me down. Jumping into our first story from headlines, like I said, really kind of devastating news out of India from the Gadchiroli district. Apologies if I'm between that word. I assume that I am. But um, by last count, we had 37 Maoists who were slain by the pigs there during a raid in the jungle. That that number may increase. They're still pulling bodies out of the river, unfortunately. But, um, you know, not a whole lot to say. The, the protracted people's war in India along with the Philippines, is something that I want to get into in a future episode in detail. But I just wanted to bring this up this week to say, you know, more or less like red salute to our fallen comrades, glory to the PPW in India. I mean, these are people that are actually out there doing the damn thing, putting their asses on the line, fighting that ridiculous government. So again, at the end of the day, just really sad news, but red salute to them. Moving to at least potentially more uplifting news, Let's go ahead and talk about the recent developments out of the DPRK in South Korea. So after 60 plus years, it seems the conflict between the two is reaching an end. Tensions have eased, to say the least. And there's a lot to be said on this topic. Um, You know, as I said previously, we're going to be getting into speculation here, which generally doesn't do anybody any good. But I think it's important to discuss where this may be headed, specifically as it concerns the DPRK. So... I think at face value, you know, surface level, peace between the two is a good thing. The reunification of Korea is a positive thing. There's no doubt about that. So it's it's great to see. But we have to be a little bit cynical about what's going to happen from here on out, right? Just a few things to keep in mind here. If we're looking at the history of an imperialist nation like the U.S., their track record, and we've seen this ramping up of aggression towards the DPRK from the Trump administration, It's important to remember that really the main deterrent, whether we're talking about the Soviet Union, Iran, the DPRK up until now, is the fact that nuclear weapons will keep the U.S. out of your country. That is a proven fact. So when you have the DPRK agreeing to denuclearize, it it brings up some red flags, right? And I know it's pretty cynical to assume that just because the DPRK is getting rid of nukes that the U.S. is instantly going to come in and just destroy them. But... It's something we've done before in the U.S., right? Look back at the Korean War. And that's why if you go to your local independent bookstore, I implore you to do so. Go to the military section. You'll see thousands of books about World War II. Even though the Soviets won that war, that's something we don't like to discuss here in the U.S. But go to the Korean War section, if they even have one. There's going to be like five or six fucking books. It's ridiculous. It's because the U.S. has a really bloody and nasty history in Korea. You know, taking out civilian targets when they ran out of military targets, like blowing up dams to flood villages. It's fucking horrific. And that's the reason we've tried to erase that history. So to assume that just because the DPRK no longer has nukes and to assume that the U.S. would then take that opportunity to go in there and just absolutely blow them to shit. I don't think that's necessarily cynical. It's just being a realist about the history of the United States. And if we consider South Korea here, I mean, they have been pretty cozy with the U.S., let's be honest about that as well. So while I think peace is good for them, obviously, it's, you know, again, like face value, surface level, this is a good thing. Peace is always good. They have had a pretty tight relationship with the U.S., so it's hard to say exactly what their motivations are in this entire thing, unfortunately. I would love for this just to be a really 
positive thing like you know this conflict is at an end i mean by all accounts the president there moon has has been you know, he seems like he's not super into war he doesn't seem super aggressive but again this is a very capitalist nation so it's hard to really nail down their intentions and something else to consider um i had a very brief discussion on twitter with mubarak the host from on mass podcast about this subject and he brought up a really really important point the fact of you know yes moon is in power there right now in the sk so he may have good intentions but he's not going to be the president forever in south korea right so when you have the dprk kind of letting down their walls denuclearizing that's all well and good while Moon is in power in South Korea, but what if they elect somebody who's fucking heinous in the next election? You know what I mean? This could all turn on a dime. And like I was saying with Mubarak there, this could turn on a dime and it wouldn't be in the interest of the Korean people. So it's important to remember that as well. This may be temporarily a good thing, but this could turn super sour very quickly. And this does really remind me of conversations I used to have with liberals when Obama was president, when he was ramping up the power of the NSA to spy on citizens, he was going through with these extrajudicial killings, and everybody was kind of cool with it. All the libs were like, well, you know, yeah, that's, I mean, it's maybe not great, but Obama's president, he's not going to exploit those powers. And I would always say like, yeah, he's president now, he's not going to be president forever. So what if, you know, you have somebody like a Trump, as we see now, some fascist getting into office, then he's got all this power to do these things. What then? But that was just never an issue. It wasn't important enough. So this could be potentially that same issue between the DPRK and South Korea. Yes, Moon right now is probably, for the most part, seems like a peaceful guy. But again, he will not be president in South Korea forever. They could elect a borderline fascist at some point. You just never know. So at the end of the day, I think peace between South Korea and the DPRK is a good thing. It's, it's great to see this 60-plus year conflict maybe come to an end. I just hope that it works out for both nations, specifically the DPRK, because again, without that deterrent, who's to say what the U.S. or other imperialist powers are going to do? Well, that will wrap it up for my portion of headlines this week. Like I said at the top of the show, we're going to have Lauren on with another Laurent. She'll be discussing the police, really the discrepancy and how they handle interactions with white people and black people, and at the end of the day, how they are just racist-ass pigs. So here's Lauren with her Laurent. All right. Well, I initially wondered what I would talk about this week. I quickly remembered that I live in the rancid melting butter sculpture that is America. Each day brings with it a fresh series of outrages. The difficulty is picking just one to focus on. As a jumping off point this week, I picked the shooting that occurred last Sunday in Tennessee. To briefly recap, a man opened fire on a Waffle House in Nashville, injuring several people and killing four. His rampage was cut short when one of the customers in the restaurant wrestled away his gun. The gunman ran off and was caught after a manhunt that lasted about 24 hours. The man in custody for this is Travis Reinking, and to describe him is to describe so many of his predecessors. White, male, troubled, with a history of disturbing behavior and run-ins with law enforcement. As is so often the case when men choose to express their feelings with bullets, white terrorist apologists on the right and left will say a lot of the same things. They'll use words like loner or lone wolf. They'll highlight the murderer's non-lethal achievements or mention his potential. Often they'll reflexively suggest mental health issues as the motivating force behind their actions, as though the only way a white person could do something undeniably monstrous is if they're mentally ill. That being said, in this case, there actually do seem to be some mental health issues at play, which I will detail further in a few moments. There's 
a lot to unpack here between the criminal inadequacy of mental health services here in the U.S. and the terrible laxity of our gun laws. And those are definitely issues I will touch upon at some point in the future. Um, But for now, I'm just going to focus on one issue, and that is the blatant racism of our police force. Now, as I said before, Travis Ranking was no no stranger to law enforcement. In the past few years, he's had multiple run-ins. Just to name a few, um, at one point, his parents called emergency services because their son was convinced Taylor Swift was stalking him and he was expressing suicidal thoughts. Um, In one bizarre episode, Ryan King threatened one of his father's employees with a gun before throwing it into the trunk of his car, driving to a local pool, and exposing himself to the lifeguards. Um, Most notably, in July of last year, Ryan King breached a security barrier outside the White House, telling a Secret Service officer that he wanted to speak with Donald Trump and that, as a sovereign citizen, he had a right to inspect the grounds. And so after this, the police confiscated his guns, his ammo, his firearm owner's identification. These were turned over to his father, who at some point gave them back to his son. He might face criminal charges for this himself. Time and time again, reports were filed. He was arrested and let go. At one point, he underwent evaluation at a mental hospital, although his diagnosis is not public record. All of this, and still we are left with a tragedy that seems, even allowing for hindsight, infuriatingly preventable. Now let's compare Ryan King's story to others, like Stephon Clark, murdered by the by the cops in his grandparents' backyard, unarmed except for the cell phone his killers apparently found very threatening, or Philando Castile, shot during a traffic stop while reaching for his ID after cautiously telling the officer about his legally registered gun, or Tamir Rice, a child playing in the park with a toy gun, shot by a cop less than two seconds after he got out of his cruiser. I could name example after example after example of these types of injustices. These are unfortunately just a few. And I'm not trying to suggest that Travis Ranking should have been shot. I will never advocate for more cop killings. But isn't it telling that no matter how erratic Ranking's behavior, the police officers who dealt with him never felt like they were in any danger, never felt any need to deploy their weapons? Over and over again, law enforcement will give white people the benefit of the doubt beyond all reasonable doubt, while people of color don't get the slightest chance, unless by chance you mean the brief moment between when an officer delivers some sort of warning and when he fires his weapon. We do need some form of law enforcement. It would be anarchy otherwise, and I don't believe in chaos. But this agency should be demilitarized. Its officers should not have the option of lethal force. Now, I know I'm not the first person to say these things. I'm one of many. But it's, a, it's an important topic for this show. If we truly dream of revolution, we must acknowledge the necessity of abolishing the police as they exist now. We must break free of a system that is corrupt and oppressive. We must overthrow these swaggering, violent brutes in uniform who vow to protect and serve but do neither. Until we are prepared to take the necessary steps to dismantle this rotten framework, the murders will continue, the injustices will mount up, every day there will be bloodshed that goes unpunished. Fixing law enforcement won't fix this country, not by a long shot, but goddamn, it would be a start. All right, that will wrap it up for headlines this week. Go ahead and pop on your Ushankas, because it's time to talk about part three of the Russian Revolution. Один казак по дому, коню на гриву, по ватуранил. Один казак по дому, коню на гриву, по ватуранил.
Эх, развитались кудрено сыплую, А до ведунка мучила его, И So just as a refresher, let's go ahead and do a quick recap of what we talked about last week. We really focused in on Lenin. We talked a bit about his childhood, how he wasn't especially political even as a teenager, but how that all kind of changed in 1887 when his older brother Alexander, better known as Sasha at that time in Russia, was hanged for plotting to kill Tsar Alexander III, and this was such a formative event for Lenin. We saw during that same year of 1887 how Lenin was then expelled from Kazan University for revolutionary activity, and we talked about how he eventually moved to St. Petersburg, formed the League of Struggle, really with the intention of bringing together not only all these Marxist groups, but forming some sort of cohesion between these Marxist groups and the labor groups that were sprouting up all throughout Russia. So this week we'll focus in on Lenin again and his struggle to bring these groups together. We'll talk about the first conference for the League of Struggle, how Lenin was not able to attend because he was exiled in Siberia at the time, of course. So this conference did not have a great outcome, to be quite honest with you, especially in Lenin's eyes. So we'll talk about his struggle to unite these groups, and we'll talk about Russia in the early 1900s, which, like I said at the top of the show, this is a very tumultuous time in Russia's history. So as we discussed last week as well, when Lenin was expelled from Kazan University, shortly thereafter, he moved to St. Petersburg, formed this League of Struggle with the goal of uniting all these groups together, and he was a natural leader. I mean, he would lead these meetings, people were captivated by him, he had such a natural gift for applying Marxism and scientific socialism to the situation in Russia at the time. And he had quite a following, and that following unfortunately included the Tsarist government. They quickly realized like what a threat he was because he was such a capable leader. He was such a natural at this. So he was on their radar pretty early. And being on this Tsarist government's radar is what got Lenin exiled. You know, they knew very quickly. They could see that he was a leader, he was a threat, so they gave him a one-way ticket to Siberia, which was an effective move, because this League of Struggle that Lenin had formed, again, with the goal of bringing together not only the Marxist groups, but forming one big party between the Marxist groups and the labor groups that could really challenge the Tsarist autocracy. This League of Struggle group had their first conference in 1898, but because Lenin was in Siberia, there was no leadership there, and it just didn't really produce any desirable results. At the end of the conference, there was no party, the cohesion was not there, and things were just more confused, if anything. Much of this confusion was due to the legal Marxist or economists that we talked about last week. Now, this was a group of people that believed that the proletariat really didn't have a role in politics. They should leave that to the liberal bourgeoisie, the working class, and just worry about working conditions, etc. And we can see many modern-day examples of this, of this mindset, where you have union members who, again, while it's important to improve the working condition for working people, no doubt about it, they just solely focus on economism and improving things for workers and have no revolutionary consciousness. This group of legal Marxists was exactly the same. 
And so without Lenin present at the conference, without that leadership to battle this type of ideology, you had the legal Marxists being pretty effective in muddying the waters. They were able to convince people that, hey, the working class proletariat shouldn't be revolutionary. They, should, again, should just focus on improving the working day, workers' rights. We'll let the liberal bourgeoisie worry about the politics. So they didn't want, they called themselves Marxists. They dressed up in Marxist garb, but they didn't want an actual revolution, which is the most anti-Marxist thing you could possibly think of. So Lenin, while still in exile, um, actually got together a conference of his own people, of the exiled folks, kind of like the outcasts, uh, got together and talked about how this was ridiculous. This was not the path to take, that the proletariat was the class to lead the revolution, just as Marx had said. So Lenin knew that he had to find a way beyond this conference, again, to unite these groups. How was he going to get everybody on the same level? How was he going to really stir up this revolutionary consciousness? How was he going to have this mass agitation amongst workers? And he came up with a pretty brilliant idea. Now, obviously, during Russia in this time, there was no social media, clearly, but um, he knew that there had to be an effective tool to disseminate his message. And he did that through starting his own illegal paper called Iskra. Now, Iskra in Russian means spark. So that was kind of the intention. Like Lenin saw this as the spark of the revolution. He knew again that he had to disseminate all this knowledge. He had to get people on the same page if they were going to form a party and really challenge the czar. And really the timing of starting this paper couldn't have been better. Because if you look back at the early 1900s, not only in Russia, but throughout Europe as well, capitalism was hitting a crisis. Now, as we know today, capitalism is in crisis often. It's really a roller coaster ride. This is the nature of the beast. But this was the first time that we saw capitalism across the globe hitting a rut. And there were hundreds of thousands of layoffs. Working conditions were made much worse. Uh, you know, wages went down for people that were still employed. So the workers rejected this. They're like, fuck this. So we saw the rise of strikes. There were strikes throughout Russia, throughout Europe. And as Marx predicted, of course, believe it or not, the proletariat led the way. The working people started the strikes. They were dissatisfied. And the peasants saw this and weren't inspired. They're like, yeah, you know, our conditions suck too. They're maybe even worse. So we're going to strike as well. The students saw this and were like, yeah, this is fucked up. We're going to strike as well. So we had the proletariat during the early 1900s throughout Europe and Russia leading the way with all these strikes because capitalism, again, hit this major crisis. So during this time period, you had Lenin and the others working for this illegal paper, Iskra, realizing that now was the time to strike. The revolutionary consciousness amongst the workers, not only in Russia, but again throughout Europe, was really at its height. So now was the time to bring these people together if they could and form a party that was strong enough to not only challenge the czar, but to challenge the leaders in Europe as well. This was to be an international effort. So we talked about that first Congress of the League of Struggle, how Lenin wasn't able to be present because he was exiled in Siberia. And we talked about how it was pretty ineffective at the end of the day, how just kind of confusion reigned. And this was due to the economists and the legal Marxists kind of mudding the waters again with their talk of the proletariat not leading the revolution. Well, there was a second Congress in 1903 by the League of Struggle and Lenin was present, Lenin was there, and the result was much different. So out of the second Congress, we actually did have the formation of what would be called the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party. Again, a group, supposedly, who is going to be strong enough to challenge the czar and really make a mark. But 
as throughout history, we've learned with legal Marxists, with opportunists, etc. Anytime there's talk of revolution, there's going to be people who just don't have the fucking guts to do it. So even out of this second group, we had a split between what would be known as the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. And we'll really get into the Bolsheviks and Mensheviks and their disagreements next week. Now, next week, we'll also discuss more about this paper Iskra, this illegal newspaper that was started by Lenin and a few others, because I'm sure, as you can imagine, it was not super popular amongst the czarist government. There were many attempts to shut it down, and there were just so many creative ways that Lenin and others found a way to disseminate this newspaper. So really kind of a rad story, even just behind that newspaper itself. So again, we'll talk about the Bolsheviks, the Mensheviks. We'll talk a little bit more about Russia during the early 1900s, and we'll talk about that newspaper, which is such an inspiring thing. So that's going to wrap it up for this week's episode. If you want to talk with me, if you have questions, you just kind of want to shoot the shit, you can find me on Twitter at ManifestPod. You can find the Facebook page at Manifesting Podcast. You can message me there if you like. I am on Instagram occasionally as well. And if you want to support the show, which isn't, you know, you don't have to by any means. I'm willing to do this for free, obviously. But if you do want to support the show that is super appreciated, you can do so at Patreon.com slash ManifestPod. Also, if you have any feedback about potential changes to the show, like I said, I'm going to be doing interviews, I'm having other people on, positive or negative, like I'm, I'm really open to criticism and feedback, especially from this group. You seem like a very intelligent group, so I'm going to take that seriously. So yeah, if you're not into what's going on, if you have something you like, something you don't like, let me know. I always appreciate that type of feedback. Unless you're hitting me with some anti-communist bullshit, like you can fuck off. So anyways, until next week, red salute.